Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Tonight on Battleground, education overload. Why too much education is ruining our young Australians. I'll be joined by Professor Stephen Schwartz, the author of a new paper provocatively entitled Degree Inflation Undermining the Value of Higher Education. Hello, I'm Nick Cater, Senior Fellow at the Menzies Research Centre, columnist with The Australian, and the presenter of the show, Battleground, which streams every Thursday night on ADH-TV. We begin tonight with a deeply disturbing revelation from Canberra. It's a story of government censorship and social media corporate collusion in Australia, in this country. This week, we learned that the federal government intervened at least 4,213 times to restrict or censor posts about the COVID-19 pandemic on digital platforms. This information emerged from a freedom of information request by a Liberal Senator Alex Antic. Now, details of the guidelines under which the interventions remain are murky and have not been revealed at all. Neither has the government been prepared to release details of the information that was censored or, or why, which makes it all the more troubling. Australia, we thought, is not the sort of country where these things happen. But clearly, under COVID-19, a lot of very strange things happen. Uh, Senator Alex Antic has uh, joined me now. He's just left uh, Senate's co Senate committee in Canberra to join us for this interview. Alex, uh, since you've got that Freedom of Information press, have you, have you been able to glean any more detail on this from your questioning of bureaucrats in Senate estimates? Well, not a lot, Nick. I've got to say, I, I, this is pretty extraordinary, as you said in your intro there. And what we got from our Freedom of Information request back six months ago was... Uh, a 28-page document, entirely redacted, all of it, every single page just blanked out, uh, and some numbers. And the numbers said, uh, and we asked for a five-year period just to give it some reference, um, that 13,000-odd uh, requests were made by Home Affairs to various platforms. So that's all of them. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, around about 9,000 or so related to terrorism-related content. So, you know, fair enough. That's what the whole purpose of that arrangement presumably was. But 4,213 related to COVID-related matters. And I quizzed the uh, the bureaucrats, the Department of um, Home Affairs, yesterday in Senate Estimates. And uh, really what I was told was 
we don't take these posts down. We just simply request that they be taken down. And we do so because of what we're told from other departments, such as the Department of Health. Now, to me, that sounds like what we've been seeing in the United States, which is effectively a censorship industrial complex where you've got, uh, you know, you've got big tech, you've got the social media companies interacting with uh, government departments, uh, and then ultimately, presumably, the, the message coming from places like the, the WHO and the CDC in the United States and maybe even big pharmaceutical companies. And we're seeing a conga line, almost a bureaucratic conga line. And, and the net effect of that is that Australians are less free to speak on what are now the main news platforms that we have. You know, really, this is an important tool for Australians. So this problem's never been addressed. And this really has exposed what I think is a really troubling development. So let's get this straight. They're using basically legislation that was passed to deal with terrorism to do this, right? Legislation which at the time, I think some of us sort of raised our eyebrows and thought, well, you know, we wouldn't want this to go too far. But at least in, the, in fighting terrorism, it seemed a reasonable thing. But of course, you always get mission creep, don't you? They, they then you take this legislation and say, well, well, why not? We'll use this to shut people up on social media if they happen to be saying bad things about the vaccine or anything like that. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, you know, it starts off, I think it was described during Senate estimates as starting from the Christchurch massacre when I think the, the shooter live streamed a lot of it. And, you know, no one has any any issues with that sort of stuff being removed. Of course, it has to be. But as you say, it's mission creep. It's bracket creep. You know, it's it's this sort of slippery slope argument that we see all the time when when we when we give away freedoms of any nature. And this is really no different. This is another version of that whereby uh, what started out as a system, and, and the reason that Home Affairs were given this task was because they had the system already in place. You know, if you build it, they will come. Uh, so my question to them was, well, what's next? Are we going to start to see Home Affairs being the enforcers of a climate narrative or enforcers of a voice narrative? Uh, where does it stop? And um, it really, that, that was all kind of brushed off and rejected. But, you know, if you'd said five years ago that, that the Department of Home Affairs, the department that's there to deal with border control, terrorism and so forth, was enforcing a public health narrative, um, you'd get some very, very side looks on that. And, and so here we are. You know, this is exactly what's happened. We, 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 you and I, during the COVID pandemic, talked about this often. We were both very frustrated with the the censorship of information, the lack of useful information coming out of the Department of Health. I mean, I don't think they ever told us, for instance, that one of the most effective things you can do to uh, protect yourself against COVID was go out and get some sunlight, you know, get some vitamin D in your skin. I mean, actually, they told us the opposite. So we know all that. But we know the kind of thing that they were censoring, right? They were censoring things like anything to do with... Uh, a treatment like ivermectin, for instance, where, you know, I mean, which has been, uh, I took it <laughs> and it seemed to be all right for me. Uh, but, you know, very safe medicines that, that have been well proven and tested or anybody who said, well, maybe you shouldn't take the vaccine. Those are the kind of things they were censoring. Right. But we now know in hindsight that the kind of position that, that you would have taken and I would have taken, which is to let people make their own minds up about the vaccine, not force, not coerce them into taking it, was the right decision. That would have been the right decision for the government, right? Yeah, and we don't know exactly what was being taken down. We've, we heard yesterday that there were some things of that nature. I mean, there was even some suggestion that uh, arrangements for protests may have even been interfered with or, uh, you know, as you say, particular types of treatment. And, I mean, look, there was, of course, a lot of 
animated stuff going on outside in the in the big wide world and, and a lot of it would have been colorful and probably some of it would have just been a bit off the beaten track and harmless but you know this is the problem when you start clamping down on free speech they talked yesterday with those famous words misinformation and disinformation i've never been able to determine what the difference between those <laughs> those except that every single bureaucrat in the western world seems to be using them now um, but the question is who decides what's misinformation who decides what's disinformation uh, it certainly doesn't, uh, in my book, rest with a Department of Home Affairs bureaucrat, uh, even if they're taking instructions from, you know, the Department of Health. I mean, you know, this this could ultimately have uh, been been very, very bad for Australians' health. But my problem is, where does it go from here? You know, we, we've seen so much of our freedom evaporated, and I think this is just another example of that. And uh, so we'll be we'll be continuing to push on that. I want to know exactly what all of those. Uh, all of those entries were for, all of the 4,213, uh, and I want to see the document. I want to know exactly what what the what the procedures are for dealing with social media companies. It's it's we are now living in a very difficult environment where these big tech companies have so much power over what we see, and the parliament needs to address this. I, I tried uh, two years ago to get a Senate Select Committee up on this very issue, and it was it lost by a single vote in the Senate. I think it's it's time for all of these reviews to uh, to be re-reviewed. Yeah, I mean, there is an issue, right? We're not, we're not saying that, that there's not an issue with social media. Sure, there's an awful lot of disinformation, misinformation, deliberate lies, you know, uh, quite complex conspiracies, like, for instance, the, the, the Donald Trump-Russia uh, nonsense, which, which we, we're hearing about now in the US. But, but the point is, how do you deal with this? I, I think I'm with you. I'm very uncomfortable about the idea that government should put itself up as the body that actually uh, monitors or polices this, that takes us down some very difficult paths, I think. Mm. It does. And it really is only one step removed from a ministry of truth, which, you know, in effect, we've seen in other parts of the world already developing in places like uh, New Zealand and Canada, I think, have started down that path. And, and, and you know, this is a very, very um, dangerous way to go when you've got government being the arbiters of truth. And that's the kind of language we heard during COVID. And now we're starting to learn that there were mechanisms in place to enforce that. I mean, it, it was tried to be uh, characterised yesterday as being all very innocent and very trivial and very procedural. Um, but I don't see it that way at all. I, I, I think this is a real scandal and a real problem. Yeah. So I think the response, see if you disagree with me, we've got to revisit this legislation. We've got to revisit the anti-terrorism legislation and clearly it has to be uh, revised or redrawn to keep it for what it was intended for and nothing more, right? Yeah, look, I think that's right. I just don't like the idea of any government department censoring free speech any more than is absolutely necessary. We, we all accept that freedom of speech is not a finite concept and that there always have to be limits. You can't have people walking around calling for people to be killed or terrorism and all those sorts of things. But that's the problem here is who draws the line and on what terms. And I think this is a problem that politics hasn't grappled with yet, which is exactly why we needed the Senate in the last term to delve into it. And we'd be miles ahead of the curve now. Um, but there's a lot of work to do on this. And, and look, different. Now this is different to the era where we had media ownership laws on domestic newspapers. These are big multinational companies. So bringing them to heel and making them uh, stand for freedom of speech is, is a real challenge. Now, I know, Alex, you're, you're due back in a Senate Estimates Committee uh, hearing now to give a few more bureaucrats a bit of heat. So I don't want to keep you from that. You're doing a great job and good luck with uh, getting more information about this particular case out.
Yeah, thanks, Nick. Thanks for the chance to have a chat. Thanks. See you. And now to this week's podcast conversation that I recorded earlier today with Professor Stephen Schwartz. He's the author of a new paper provocatively entitled Degree Inflation, Undermining the Value of Higher Education, published by the Centre for Independent Studies. Stephen, join me from the other side of the country, from Western Australia. I'm here in the ADH podcast studio in Sydney to talk to Stephen Schwartz, the author of a new paper provocatively entitled Degree Inflation undermining the value of higher education. It's published by our friends at the Centre for Independent Studies. Stephen joins me from the other side of the country, from Western Australia. Welcome, Stephen. Oh, great to be here, Nick. Uh, Stephen, your paper touches on something that's been bothering me for quite a while, uh, the risk of overexposure to university, both for individual students and the risks for Australia more broadly. Uh, you make the comparison in your paper that it's a bit like sunlight, you know, just because something is good doesn't mean that more is better. And sunlight's essential for the body to produce vitamin D, but excessive exposure, of course, leads to skin damage and cancer. That's basically your thesis, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with higher education. It's a good thing in theory, but we're just spending too much time in that zone right now. Uh, yes, basically, I, I should agree with you and start from the very beginning. My premise is that higher education is a good thing. Um, my wife and I were the first in our families to go to university, and pretty much every opportunity we've had in life has come from that. Um, but because something is good doesn't necessarily mean more of it is better. We're in a position now where we're suffering from what I call degree inflation. Um, and it's a similar effect to monetary inflation. The more dollars you print, the less each one is worth. Well, the same thing happens to be true of degrees. The more degrees you print, the less they're worth. When everybody has a degree, well, they won't be worth anything at all. They can, we're already beginning to see that. One degree is not enough for a job. We now need to have a master's degree. Master's degrees are even more expensive than undergraduate degrees. A lot of money is being allocated here, and whether it's being allocated wisely um, is debatable. Mm. Well, look, it's often called, I think, credentialism. You know, this uh, imperative to get more and more credentials on your CV to be the next person who's only got one fewer than you. But we should just start actually by outlining your credentials, Stephen, so that people realise that you're somebody who knows what they're talking about in this field. You were born in New York. You can completed a postgraduate uh, work at Syracuse University, then began an ap academic career which took you to the University of Illinois, University of Texas, University of Western Australia, University of Queensland, and you served as Vice-Chancellor at three universities, Murdoch University, Brunel in London, and Macquarie University here in Sydney. So you've, you had a career in which you really thrived in that sector, uh, receiving fellowships, numerous scholarly grants, prizes, research grants, etc. But um, at the same time, you must have been conscious while you were in the sector that things were not going according to plan. What were, you know, when did you first become, begin to think that too much education might be too much? Well, actually, it, it's a fairly recent thing. Um, if you recall, back in not even 10 years, universities were still pretty much uh, for people who had academic interests and academic inclinations. Uh, there's been a massive growth in Australian universities over the last decade. 
um, almost 700 or more than actually 700,000 additional students. It's now a very, very common um, in kind of requirement for pretty much every job. Jobs that formerly didn't even require higher education are now insisting on degrees, maybe even more than one. And I started to worry about really social mobility and the opportunities that are now being denied those who, for one reason or another, aren't able to avail themselves of formal education. Maybe they're ill or poor or um, family background or, or something or other kept them out of university. That's now keeping them out of jobs, jobs that formerly they would have had. Um, this is bad for social mobility, it's bad for the country, and it's bad for those students as well. Mm. well I can give you a, an example from my own, well, my previous field of career, journalism, that, um, you know, there was a time when it, it would be very unusual for somebody to enter journalism with a university degree. Normally they would complete year 12, uh, join a, uh, one of the big newspaper companies, go through essentially an apprenticeship, a four-year four year cadetship in which they'd have to type in the shipping news and all that sort of stuff. It was a craft rather than a profession. And I think journalism changed quite dramatically when it became a profession and that was to a large part due, due to its academic uh, academic academification can i say that but suddenly you needed a, a degree in journalism or communications to get into university it became a much less practical job and i think journalism is not the only field in which that's occurred would i be right i think it's occurring in every field nick and um, sometimes dramatically. There's a Harvard University study, very recent one, that looked at degree inflation in a, a variety of different professions and courses uh, and, and uh, jobs. One of the ones that they looked at was a job called production supervisor. It's a common job in factories and various others, places where they make things. And 67% of the people who are currently working in that job didn't have degrees but 100% of the advertisements for new positions in that job required degrees. What are you supposed to make of that? Are, are those 67% of people doing it badly? Are they poor at their job? Well, the answer is no, as far as anyone can tell, they're doing it very well. And yet now a degree is required. Um, and for those people who can't get that degree for various reasons, they're frozen out of that job. Um, it's it's ironic, but it's also quite sad to see that's happening. Yeah, the, the the other thing you you draw attention to in your report, of course, is what happens to vocational education and training, or uh, you know, getting a trade skill, I suppose, in in more in more direct language. So that no long, that becomes almost a second class option when you every kid is encouraged to go to university because that's the epitome of success. Uh, but then, of course, you end up with a position we're in here in Australia right now where we're short of people with practical skills. And also, and this is true, I think, across most of the Western world, crucially, we, 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 we're very short of people who go into the caring professions, you know, jobs that are, 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 going, are really in high demand and will be in high demand as the population ages. It sort of skews people's choices and, and skews the workforce later on, doesn't it? It does indeed, and um, I feel that we've really messed up vocational uh, training in Australia. Um, we messed it up in a number of ways. One is we highly subsidise students to go to university, 
while for years we didn't subsidize them to do BET. And so in many cases, it was actually less expensive to go to university. And then we have the other issue which you alluded to, and that's the esteem in which university education is held as compared to vocational and, and training, which is held in somewhat lower esteem. It's a good idea for other people's children, but not for our children. We want them to go to university. You add up that and you get a very skewed educational environment. We've really downgraded BET and, uh, to, our, to our cost and actually to the cost of the students who were fooled into going to university because, as you know, a good tradesman makes way more money than your average university graduate. You draw attention to uh, the rewards of going to university. In, in general terms, correct me if I'm wrong, it, you, would still, you are still generally better off if you go to university. You're likely to earn more um, in your subsequent profession. But my question is this, do you earn enough uh, to pay off the investment you've made in both time and, um, and money, you know, whatever you have to borrow to go to university? And secondly, is, is there any sense that as we get more and more graduates, that the, the, the difference between a non-graduate salary and a graduate salary is diminishing? Uh, yes, it is diminishing. The premium, as you call it, the graduate premium for going to university is getting smaller and has been getting smaller now for more than a decade. Uh, and that's con you know, only to be expected if we've got more and more degrees than I said earlier, the value of each one of those degrees starts to decrease. Um, a study specific to Australia looked at the lowest 20%, that is, it's people who have graduated from university but are in the lower end of the income bracket. And for most of those students, they would have been better off having gone directly to work from school than going on to higher education. If financial well-being is the only measure of what higher education is for, then there are about 20%, even now, uh, of students who would be better off financially having gone directly to work. And let me draw attention to another uh, looming or, or growing issue that I see which is not talked about much and that is the problem of home for family formation so if you're spending longer in university I mean it's not unusual is it to meet somebody now in in their late 20s who's only just finished university after doing you know 25 degrees or something uh, just about to start out seriously in the workplace now there are problems there of course because they've missed out on the serious earnings they might have made in their 20s they've also accumulated substantial hex decks and so they're, they're in a position in the late 20s where they're nowhere near able to even think about putting a deposit on a home or or whatever and that pushes out family formation for those people who want to form a family and we end up with the situation we've got now where you've got an increasing number of people who are single at the age of 35 and I think that education is, is, there are many reasons why that might be, but I think education is definitely play a, playing a part in that. Would you like to comment? Yeah, um, it, hasn't something I, it isn't something I've given some thought to, but now that you bring it up, um, there's a whole lot of changes in society going around family formation. Uh, and I would imagine that education is one of them and feeds into them because of its importance in getting jobs, so it's related to the question you asked earlier. Um, 
if you do you make more money by going to university? Well, you do because many jobs are reserved only for people who go to university. And so if that's a requirement, then you can see why they might have a, a better chance of making more money. But to get that extra money, they have to spend a lot more time studying, which pushes back growing up, as, as you'd say, and pushes, uh, pushes forward in their life the kind of activities that would have taken place at a younger age in previous generations. And one of the offshot of that, which has got reverberations throughout society, is there are fewer children. Um, as you get older, it's harder to have a bigger family. Australia is only really barely replacing itself. It's ahead of some European countries and others where essentially they are going to vanish if they don't start having children. We're moving in that same direction. When you talk to employers, as I do, you know, it's not, not uncommon to hear them say, well, look, they, to complain that people are coming from university uh, with, without complete skills. So they come not ready for the job, uh, in fact, barely ready for the job. And part of the part of their uh, time uh, starting a new career is actually learning how to do it in a way you'd hope they'd learn at university. So you hear that on the one hand, and yet employers still will favour university graduates often because just it's a simple sign that somebody is able to apply themselves over a, over an extended period in order to get a degree. So can we think of any better, are there any better ways we can do to sort of give a quality assurance to employers that, that candidate X is a very good employee other, other than expecting them to spend four years working on a degree that's probably not much use to them? Oh, well, there must be a better way of doing it because it's, it's the signalling, which is um, what you're referring to, is indeed what most employers are looking for. It is a signal that doesn't really say that they have, these applicants have learned something directly relevant to the position for which they're applying. It does save them some signal that they're willing to stick things out and uh, maybe they have a good tolerance for hard work. Maybe in some cases they have good tolerance for boredom, but they are, they are using it for that purpose. What I believe is that many people who have experience, that is direct real world experience, um, could possibly do the same job, maybe do it better. And it's really important to try to get employers to think in that same direction uh, and to do a little bit more work in evaluating people. Do you have the experience? Have you got the skills? Do you really need that piece of paper? Is that piece of paper even going to ensure that you're a better employee? Um, I think most employers would be interested in doing it. Maybe now that it's harder to find staff, more employers actually are doing that. Um, and so, certainly the one that, uh, the event of recent event that really opened my eyes was a new governor in the American state of Pennsylvania, governor called Shapiro, who on his very first day in office, eliminated university degrees as a requirement for all state government jobs other than jobs that require registration, such as doctors, for example. So everyone else, no degrees required. So what immediately what happens? He has a much bigger pool to choose from. He has a much fairer pool to choose from. If we're interested in all the things we hear about, diversity, equity, inclusion, what better way to reach those goals than to eliminate these degrees as a requirement and instead rely on ability, experience, and skills? He's in one, in one fell swoop, he's made the system fairer.
I th- you sense too that there's a great feeling of disappointment from uh, undergraduates and people who have recently graduated that they're not getting what they expected out of university. It's a very sort of subprime experience for them. There's um, a paper you you uh, cite in your in your paper by um, uh, Michael Craig Corliss of University of Canberra, which I thought had some quite frighteningly stark statistics in about unemployment. So they've said, well, unemployment rates amongst bachelor graduates over 25 years of age, and they've compared 2006-2016. Just to give a few examples, uh, somebody with a society and culture degree uh, was 5.7% unemployment rate in 2016. In 2006, sorry. And 9.6% unemployment 2016. I mean, that's way above the general unemployment rate. And that's not even the worst. I was interested to see the information technology, for instance, 14.9% of graduates in 2016 were unemployed. People are, uh, students, students are entitled to come out feeling cheated, aren't they? If, if, they're, if they're unable to get into the career that they thought the university degree was going to fit them into. Particularly if that's what they were led to expect would happen. If universities are sold as a way of getting the very best and high paying jobs, then yes, your answer is right. But they're not the only ones who should be disappointed because remember, they leave university with a debt. And if they are unable to repay their debt because they can't find a job or can't find a job that pays enough, someone else has to pay that debt. Now, who is that someone else? Well, it's you and me and everybody else in Australia, including the people who never get the opportunity to go to university. So we're looking here at what is a a system that might be um, fairly unfair in that it is looking, it is taxing people who haven't benefited from university in order to subsidize those who have gone to university. If no one gets a job, then we're all paying for nothing. There's a kind of bums on seat mentality, isn't there? I mean, to put it crudely, that uh, universities uh, expand. They, they like, it's like some Ponzi scheme. They're continually expanding. They want more students because that's more income for them. That uh, at some point, surely the university has to uh, take responsibility for ensuring that the people that it, it admits to university um, are up to the task. I mean, I remember back, I was going to say back in my day, Stephen, but I'll try and avoid that. You know, in, in, in an earlier era, people would talk about winning a place at university. I've won a place at university. Nobody talks about that now, do they? Because they just automatically assume that they'll get one. But surely we have to have greater quality control at that input stage. Universities need to be made more responsible for ensuring that the people that they allow in or up to the up to the job have the academic intellectual qualities to benefit from that degree oh, absolutely and um, not just legally but morally no one should be brought into a university with the expectation that they won't be able to complete and leave disappointed but still with the debt because remember the universities still keep the money whether you succeed or not whether you get a job that repays or not it could be possible to consider perhaps making universities partly responsible for student loans, kind of part guarantors of student loans that would 
possibly make them a little bit more circumspect about who they admit if at the end of the day they would have to pay back loans for those who didn't succeed. Yeah, this is a policy change that we've been looking at at the Menzies Research Centre, just floating it, um, that if universities, for instance, um, are, you know, say five years after somebody's graduated, they still haven't got a, a, a job in the career field in which they were supposed to, or alternatively, people who drop out of university don't even complete the course, then 50%, say, of that HETS debt that should should go to the university. University should be liable for half of the debt. That would surely. Do you, I mean, you've worked in universities. Would that have the desired effect, perhaps, of putting more attention on quality control at the input stage? Well, certainly at the superficial level, it sounds right to me, um, because a thing called moral hazard, that uh, the uh, phrase that economists use, which is taking risks with other people's money. And that's what's going on at the moment. Um, and if you make the risks come home to the university, it may very well work. The only problem I can foresee is to make sure that there's no way to game that system. Um, because every time we bring in a new change, um, a lot of very bright people figure out how to game it. Um, so with that caveat of let's make sure that it works, it seems sensible to me. Um, there's also the other end of it. Um, students who go to university but who don't get a degree that um, um, pays them enough money to repay their loans just don't repay them. So again, the taxpayer is stuck at both ends. It, it's not only paying the bits that the university keeps, but also the bits that the students don't repay. Uh, and that's equally difficult. Um, there's no real interest rate attached to the student loans in Australia. And we should think about there being a proper interest rate so that um, we don't have the regressive taxation system of people who don't go to university paying for those who do. Um, it's sort of like taxing beer to pay for champagne the way we've got it set up at the moment. Let's... Um Let's talk about. Uh, let me put to you a couple of a couple of reasons why people justify the expansion of higher education. First, they say that experience of higher education leads to social mobility. It leads you, enables you to get on and 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 get above your where you would otherwise be. Is is that was that true? And is it still true that it is a, a place a very useful form, a sort of stepping stone, if you like, of social mobility? It was indeed true, uh, and it was true of many people, it's true of me, it's true of m many people indeed. But as you have more and more degrees, as degrees inflate, it's less and less true. Uh, and there was OECD did a study of uh, social mobility and put Australia towards the bottom of social mobility within the OECD, which is a club for rich countries. So we are, we are gradually eroding that social mobility mechanism by essentially inflating it, just as we would erode the value of currency if we inflate that. A second argument people put is that by upskilling people at university, you increase productivity in the economy. This is the one I've got most problems with, largely because I can see no improvement in productivity in the economy in the last, say, 15 years, despite a massive increase in attendance at university, surely that would disprove that point, would it not? 
Well, it does for me. Um, We've had an enormous increase in degrees. Um, And we have hardly seen any change in productivity. So the argument that university education will drive the productivity development of the country has no evidence to prove it. There we go. Uh, so let's go on to your solutions, Stephen, and you, you helpfully list, I think, five at the end. Um, number one, where feasible, drop degree requirements for jobs. Uh, who, who's going to be the brave employer who steps in and says, all right, we're going to drop that degree requirement from now on? Well, politic, political courage is not all that common. I think since John Kennedy's famous Profiles in Courage book, that courage seems to have disappeared from politicians. But it's not entirely absent. I mentioned earlier in our conversation the governor of Pennsylvania, who had on his very first day in office dropped degree requirements. He's not the only governor now. Of, uh, there are now several US governors who have done it. Some major employers are doing it as well. In Australia, because the government sector is so large and so many people work there, it would be a good place to start. And maybe there is a brave premier who might want to start that way or even prime minister. Um, But it would make a huge difference um, to, um, to the economy as a whole, but also to social mobility and to the, what we mean by fair, um, a fair opportunity to get forward in life. You know, equality of opportunity is a phrase we hear quite often, but fair equality of opportunity would mean everyone had the opportunity to go and live up to their own abilities and their own talents. I think that would be the easiest, quickest, and in many ways, the cheapest reform that we could think of. Uh, It's not that you'd be kept away from the job if you have a degree, it's just that you'd have a chance to apply for it even if you didn't. That would be a massive improvement. So as I mentioned earlier, that governor of Pennsylvania had, um, in his very first day in office, eliminated degree requirements. And with that one stroke, what has he accomplished? He's turned what was before a rig game against anyone who hadn't been able to go to a formal education for one reason or another, into a truly meritocratic game in which the people's experience, their talents, their abilities all counted equally. I don't think you can do anything that would help social mobility more than remove artificial requirements for for jobs and allow people to compete on a more or less even playing field. Yeah, and, and we, we, of course, we, we often talk about diversity as being a very good thing these days. It helps there too, doesn't it? Because people who go through university Typically, and I'm making a broad brush statement here, but we all recognise the truth of this, they come out thinking in a very similar way about a lot of the problems in the world. Um, they tend to lead towards you know, more intellectual, theoretical, perhaps even woke um, solutions to the world's problems, where somebody's got a more practical disposition will think about a problem a different way. So surely it's good to have both, both types of people in, in the workforce. All types of people in the workforce. So di- we, we always hear the phrase diversity, equity, and inclusion. It always seems to me, um, bring people in to universities using quotas, make sure that the university reflects the percentages of different people out there, have them spend three years, run up a debt, spend a huge amount of money running the place. 
What if you could actually get diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workforce by simply eliminating unnecessary degrees, bits of paper that aren't even related to the jobs, and judge people on their own accomplishments? People are individuals. They should be judged as individuals. Uh, you also suggest raising the esteem of vocational education, uh, and I'm right behind this. Um, how do you do that? I mean, already isn't, you know, the, the, in a way there's a financial incentive for somebody to go and get a good trade like a plumber. You, you have a wonderful, tell us a joke about the neurosurgeon and the plumber that you've included in your, in your paper. It's about the neurosurgeon who had to stay home from work because the toilet was blocked. Uh, the plumber came took 10 minutes, fixed the, fixed the, uh, the problem, and then presented the neurosurgeon with a bill for 300 pounds. It was in, based in London, this one. And uh, the neurosurgeon looked at it and thought, oh, 300 pounds, 10 minutes, it's 1,800 pounds an hour. He said, I don't make 1,800 pounds an hour, and I'm a neurosurgeon. Plummer said, look, I know, I didn't make that much when I was a neurosurgeon either. <laughs> But how do we? It's deadly true, isn't it? But how do we? How do we actually set about, in practical terms, raising the esteem uh, or raising the the social esteem for people with practical skills? Well, I thought maybe one possibility would be to actually amalgamate BET with higher education, so that they became one level of education rather than two, uh, and that would allow students to maybe pick and choose between the two. Um, and add vocational subjects into degrees and vice versa. Um, that wouldn't hurt anyone and might actually raise the esteem of, of vocational education. Uh, I used to be a dean of medicine a long time ago, and there couldn't be a more vocational course than medicine. We're training doctors to go out and be doctors, but it wouldn't have hurt them to do a bit of literature, Nick. It wouldn't have hurt them to be a bit more understanding of how people feel. Uh, a bit of the, things other than strictly medical and medical science might have made them actually better at their jobs. So a combination is what I thought. Maybe move, removing the barriers and allowing the two to work together might raise the esteem of VET and actually improve the value of degrees at the same time. It might possibly move us back towards a more classical education, uh, do you think, in which you, you, you're not narrowly specialised on one technical area, but you actually, you, 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 the purpose of university is broader than that. It's just to broaden your horizons, make you a better person, help you understand the, 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 the nicer things of Western civilization and so forth. That idea of education, which Robert Menzies used to talk about, and a lot of people of that era, the 50s did, is almost totally gone now, isn't it? But can we can we recover that idea? I'm so glad you brought this up because this this really has, for me, the most important implications of all. Menzies, of course, was a, a massive supporter of higher education and whose work did more to expand higher education than practically anyone in the history of the country. Um, and he himself said at the time he saw universities as a way of guaranteeing freedom, that education allowed free expression, free thought. This was a way that people remained free. He echoed in many ways Wentworth's comments many in the 19th century when the University of Sydney was established. That, that was the purpose of universities in those days wasn't to get you a job at the public service ticking a box. 
it was actually to build character, to build understanding, uh, to make people better citizens and can make the country a better place to live. God, if we could get back to that, Nick, we would be doing a great job for Australia. I think so. Stephen, thank you for your paper. It's most thought-provoking, and uh, I hope it has required uh, impact on thinking uh, that we would like it to do, and congratulations to the CIS, Tom Switzer and the team there for publish, publishing this uh, this work. And uh, we'll be good. To, uh, thanks for joining us on Battleground. Be good to talk to you again someday. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Thanks, Stephen. To your emails and comments now, and there were hundreds of responses to my column in The Australian this week, once again, where I put forward the arguments for nuclear small modular reactors as part of our energy mix. No country in the world has made serious reductions to carbon emissions in the electricity sector without either abundant hydro or hydro plus nuclear. Ryan Friend writes, Thank you, Nick. More of these articles, please. We need more rational conversations to overcome the ill-informed, emotive noise pushed by the Tin Hat Brigade and our current fearless leaders. There was this from Peter. Don't let blackout Bowen read this. It makes his head hurt. He will resort to ridicule and name-calling, followed by unfounded arguments. Mm, name-calling like blackout Bowen, eh? Uh, Tim writes... I'm very open to the concept of nuclear power in Australia. I am, however, interested in what funding or in-kind support Mr. Cater's Menzies Research Centre receives from uranium or nuclear industry players. Are there vested interests? It would be good to have awareness of while we're in a conversation about nuclear. Well, that's a very good question, Tim, and it's a question perhaps we should ask of organisations like the Australia Institute or Blueprint who receive funding from the renewable energy sector. Perhaps that might colour their views in imposing nuclear. Just asking. But no, for the record, the Menzies Research Centre does not receive a cent from the nuclear industry or indeed any other industry energy corporation. Our donations are fully declared as, by, as per the requirements of the Australian Electoral Commission. And if you want to find out what they are, you can go to their website. It's all there. Nicholas writes, Nick... As you know, SMR reactors are the way to go, easy to integrate into our present power system, relatively fast to build and not so expensive as primary reactors. But no, Bowen, supported by his party and the Greens, are hell-bent on turning the lights out. When will this economic vandalism end? Not, I expect, with the current political incumbents. Mm, I think you're probably right there. Jorgen Flensvig uh, comments, the anti-nuclear lobby lives in the past, clinging to outdated opinions and spouting half-truths. Sadly, there is a lack of independent thought among our government. They're just shepherds keeping the flock of lefties headed to their mythical utopia. And Vern wrote in with this observation, a week ago we were driving up the Hume Highway and I noted about 3 p.m., the 35 to 40, 40 wind turbines between Yass and Goulburn were all at idle. My Lexus was creating more hybrid energy than that billion dollar field. There's more support from nuclear. From Steve also, who writes, spot on Nick, I detect in the airwaves a small perceptible deviation from common sense in the nuclear debate. Well, I think you're right, Steve. Keep those comments coming, coming to Nick cater at adh.tv uh, or you can comment 
on the Australian website or wherever you want to get to me, I'll read them all. Uh, thank you very much to the team here at ADH for producing this program. Thank you to my team at the Menzies Research Centre, to Freya, Susan and everybody for their help too. And we'll see you all next week.